0: Welcome to this episode of Think Anesthesia Educational Podcast. I am Amanda Shelby, the Think Anesthesia Content Coordinator, interviewing Dr. Elizabeth Martinez, diplomat in veterinary anesthesia and analgesia, and Juroc's director of technical service. Dr. Martinez will provide us with a detailed approach to assisted ventilation and three specific case examples. First, a dog who presented hit by car with a pneumothorax and open fracture. Second, a dysmic cat with a suspected chronic diaphragmatic hernia. And finally, a recently fold mare with a large colon torsion requiring colic surgery. These three cases will allow Dr. Martinez to describe top concerns when anesthetizing these patients and unique strategies to assist ventilation most appropriately under anesthesia. Thank you, Dr. Martinez.
1: Thank you, Amanda, glad to be here.
0: Obviously, we're colleagues, excited to hear your perspective on these cases. Let's jump into the first case. How would you manage a hit by car dog with a pneumothorax that has an open fracture? What are your primary concerns?
1: Typically, 50% of hit by car patients can have thoracic injuries, such as pneumothorax or pulmonary contusions. And so with these patients, first, if they are shocky, we need to make sure they're stabilized before we take them to surgery. And if they have, say, pulmonary contusions, we need to understand that uh, these patients may not be symptomatic right away. It may take time for these patients to be clinically symptomatic for their pulmonary contusions. Even though we do radiographs right away, we're providing supplemental oxygen, But we need to monitor them pretty closely for the first 24, 48 hours to be sure that they're not going to be clinically symptomatic for pulmonary contusions. And so therapy for these patients, again, supportive care, adequate oxygen, and fluid therapy to maintain adequate circulating volume. Now, this patient has a pneumothorax and an open fracture. Ideally, we want to delay anesthesia until the patient is better stabilized. If there are pulmonary contusions, that is resolving but because of the open fracture, we got to weigh the, the risks and benefits of jumping in right into surgery or giving them some time because the open fracture they may be more at higher risk for infection or delayed um, healing of that fracture if we wait too long to take into to surgery.
0: Is there an ideal time to wait and recheck radiographs before taking a patient to surgery and inducing anesthesia? Typically 24 hours would be great, 48 hours definitely by then if
1: they're going to have significant pulmonary contusions, it should be radiographically evident by that time. So 24 to 48 hours would be the minimum amount of time to see it and understand the um the status of the patient before taking them to surgery.
0: So if we could convince all the parties involved to wait on an open fracture for that time frame, is there anything that you might need to do? to assist this patient with optimizing ventilation, knowing it has a pneumothorax?
1: Oh, for pneumothorax, if on radiographs, we know there's air in the chest, especially if the is in respiratory distress, and we're going to have to not only provide oxygen, but we're going to have the thoracocentesis, perhaps place a chest tube. So we're going to have to sedate these patients, at least of sedation for the thoracocentesis to get the, the air out of the chest. I would definitely have a good sedation plan and have all the supplies and drugs you need for an urgent induction, intubation, and ventilation control if they acutely decompensate while you are performing your thoracocetesis.
0: Assuming we have held off. Surgery for a period of time for obviously acute stabilization of any shock, addressing this patient's analgesia, potentially resolving some of that pneumothorax if he's symptomatic for it, or at least allowing the contusions to get to a point where they're going to tolerate anesthesia. What specifically are your top concerns for that respiratory system when we induce anesthesia?
1: With regard to the anesthetic management of this patient that has chest trauma, will there be contusions or? with our ex. My top concern is be supporting ventilation without making things worse. We also need to be sure, we evaluate the whole patient, that we're not just focused on the fracture or just the presence of air in the chest. We need to roll out other rib fractures or perhaps a flail chest, or is there a diaphragmatic hernia that we don't know about, or even head trauma. So we're going to hopefully do a thorough evaluation of the patient and be prepared to ventilate, but because we can do a lot of harm if we ventilate them incorrectly. We're going to be um, Trying to keep the patient calm and stress-free, provide adequate analgesia as we need to. We are going to induce with intravenous anesthetic drugs so we can intubate them quickly and take over vent- ventilatory support if we need to as soon as possible.
0: So what type of ventilatory support specifically would you either implement or avoid in a patient with pulmonary contusions, no Mm -hmm. pneumothorax? Now, this is kind of a sticky wicket because we know the
1: lungs are not able to expand properly, and so they are at higher risk for hypoventilation or hypoxemia. And so our ventilation strategy, I think, should be a low tidal volume, lower peak airway pressure technique. You know, that's if the patient can't initially ventilate. Um, normally on their own. So if we need to support ventilation, we're going to have a lower-ish tidal volume that we normally have, six to eight milliliters per kilogram, and let's keep our peak inspiratory pressure less than, say, 12 centimeters of water pressure when we're uh, ventilating these patients. But then the other thing I would be sure to be ready to do is if we need to emergently during surgery even, if there's a problem, perform a thoracocentesis or place a chest tube. So I will even shave an area of the chest and have it ready to go and maybe a quick prep and have all the tools I need to be able to quickly do a thoracocentesis if we get into trouble during anesthesia and surgery.
0: Switch gears and just talk quickly about how you might identify a patient that is hypoventilating. Obviously, we will be suspicious of that, but give our audience some perspective on what they might see in a patient that's hypoventilating so that they can institute appropriate therapies moving forward.
1: Well, I think the best way to assess ventilatory status is to look at carbon dioxide level, whether it be non-invasively with a capnometer or with arterial blood gas analysis, if you have that ability to. But we can also evaluate the respiratory effort and the chest excursions of the patient. But hopefully we have a means to determine the patient's end tidal or arterial CO2 level.
0: In a patient that is hypoventilating, on our capnograph, or our arterial blood gas, if that's available, what would you see your CO2 doing? Would it be increasing? Would it be decreasing? And how would that impact potentially other aspects of the arterial blood gas?
1: Well, a patient who is hypoventilating is normally hypercapnic, which means elevated carbon dioxide levels. So you would see an increase in their end tidal carbon dioxide or arterial CO2 levels. Now, this could actually get worse, continue to worsen if you're not able to intervene and support this patient's ventilation. And so that hypercapnia comes with that respiratory acidosis, which can cause some cardiovascular issues as well, tachycardia, perhaps arrhythmias. And so we need to try to get that CO2 level back down into the normal range so we don't have any complications related to that increased CO2.
0: And what would you be what would be your target normal range for this kind of patient?
1: Well, I tell CO2 normally 35 to 40, maybe even a little bit higher on these patients. Again, we don't want to overdo it. We don't want to strive for the best CO2 level because we know that if we apply too large of a tidal volume, too high of inspiratory pressure, that we could actually worsen this patient's status. So let's aim for normal CO2, but be realistic about what are the parameters that we're trying to stay within. And so we don't have this patient acutely decompensate.
0: Sounds like life is all about balance. That's right. Do you want to just shed light on potentially this patient could be hypoventilating without the presence of hypoxemia, or potentially even with the presence of hypoxemia, and how those two elements are independent?
1: For sure. So, our ventilatory status and our oxidation status are separate issues. Now, one could contribute to the other, but typically we address them independently. So a patient that is significantly hypoventilating may have improper gas exchange and thereby become hypoxemic or the hypoxemic patient in an effort to improve things may actually increase their respiratory effort and actually affect our entitled CO2 levels. So we want to be mindful of those two variables and treat them kind of independently, but realize they're they're somewhat intertwined and if affecting one can affect the other as well.
0: Could you share with us what parameters you would watch when evaluating oxygenation and what normal values are for those?
1: Our kind of beat by beat, breath by breath, non-invasive evaluation of oxygenation is with our pulse oximeter. Obviously we can use our use other non-invasive means, such as looking at mucous membrane color, but To get a better idea of oxygenation, we're going to look at our pulse oximeter, which measures the oxygen saturation of hemoglobin, which ideally that hemoglobin is fully saturated. So we're going to have a nice perky 100% on our pulse oximeter, but we know that pulse oximeter technology is not perfect. And so if it's in the higher 90s, 90%, right? 97, 98%. I'm pretty pleased that patient has adequate oxidation status. Now, of course, the gold standard would be an arterial blood gas sample, which the normal value there really depends on the inspired fraction of oxygen the patient is receiving. On room air, it's around 90 to 100. On 100% oxygen, we'd like to see it close to 500 millimeters of mercury, but we may not be able to get a arterial blood gas sample in all of our patients. So we have to use our pulse oximeter and try to keep that value in the upper 90s, 100% if possible. If it gets in the lower 90s, definitely below 90%, then that patient is hypoxemic and we need to act pretty quickly and go through our protocol for addressing hypoxemia.
0: Thank you for describing how those factors hypoxemia and hypoventilation could be intertwined, but how we might address them separately, that really allows us to segue into our next case, which is a cat that presents in respiratory distress an acute dyspneic situation to the ER, and upon radiographs and further evaluation, we discovered that it has a chronic diaphragmatic hernia. And the plan moving forward would be to resolve that. Could you touch just quickly on the differences between acute and chronic diaphragmatic hernia management from an anesthetic perspective?
1: Well, sure. We know that patients that have chronic diaphragmatic hernias are much greater risk of complications or even death because of the effects of this long-term abdominal organ displacement into the thoracic cavity, which results in long-standing compression, really sets them up for higher risk of complications. And we know there's several studies out there that have shown, gosh, mortality rate nearly double compared to patients with acute diaphragmatic hernias. We know these patients can acutely decompensate when they're anesthetized. Some patients with diaphragmatic hernias, chronic diaphragmatic hernias, can be subclinical. They may not show any symptoms at all. And then when you anesthetize them, suddenly things shift and the patient acutely decompensates. We know that this patient is already having trouble because the cat's in respiratory distress. And we also know that those organs that are displaced chronically may become injured. There could be gosh intestinal strangulation or obstruction. Liver lobe could be torsed. There may be a history of vomiting with these patients, chronic weight loss or vomiting, exercise intolerance. And so I must be mindful that there's always a possibility of aspiration pneumonia in these patients with chronic diaphrama hernias. So definitely chronic diaphrapha hernias are higher risk patients and there's a lot of things that can go wrong and that therefore they have that higher mortality morbidity.
0: Definitely highlights you're anesthetizing the whole patient and not just one specific disease or the most prevalent comorbidity that the patient's acutely presenting for. Dr. Martinez, you mentioned being a chronic diaphragmatic hernia, that the risks are higher, specifically in that postoperative phase. Could you talk to us a little bit about specific ventilation strategies for the intra-op period in this patient to minimize those postoperative complications and what those complications might be?
1: Well, sure. Patients with a chronic diaphragmatic hernia, probably the biggest complication that we see is re-expansion pulmonary edema that can happen post-operatively. And so our strategy during anesthesia is to be mindful of that. And there are ways that we can help mitigate the risk of re-expansion pulmonary edema. And this really can start at induction. So we're going to provide some oxygen by mask or flow by or nasal cannulas. We're going to hopefully have a nice stress-free induction period. We're going to use appropriate set of analgesic drugs. We're going to induce these patients and in quickly intubate and be ready to support ventilation as we need to. And we know that placing these patients in torso recumbency is actually the worst position to be. And we can definitely worsen their ventilation and oxygenation status by placing them on their back. So What I like to do is place, we call this reverse Trellenberg position, where we're going to kind of tilt the head up and sometimes the tables will tilt or we have to get creative and use towels or sandbags or pillows to somewhat get the head and chest up to help keep the abdominal organs from further compressing the lung tissue.
0: Gravity is dependable, huh?
1: (laughs) That's right. Always dependable. (laughs) And we're going to have fairly conservative ventilation strategy for these patients. We want to be mindful of our peak inspiratory or airway pressure. We may have a higher respiratory rate, possibly a lower tidal volume to keep our peak airway pressure at a lower level, definitely less than 20 centimeters of water pressure. Some will even say less than 12 to 15 centimeters of water airway pressure. Our goal is not to necessarily reinflate the lungs overall, but to maintain normal oxygenation and normal capnia.
0: And so into that post-operative period, do these patients require chest tubes or any additional monitoring?
1: I think we just have to be flexible and evaluate the patient status, sometimes just surgeon preference if we're going to place a chest tube in these patients. And then if there are chest tubes placed, we need to monitor them appropriately, make sure they're working well, make sure that we're not having pneumothorax develop because of the presence of chest tubes. So again, it just depends on multiple factors of whether or not we're going to have those chest tubes in place. But definitely, as we're closing the patient, we remove all the air out of the chest. Usually through a catheter, through the diaphragm, we're going to get the air out of the chest before we close the patient.
0: You did mention during that induction phase or in that preparation to induce, we need to try to keep their chest elevated over their abdominal contents. Obviously, the surgery is completed in dorsal recumbency because you got to access the abdomen to then remove the contents that are just placed into the chest. Is there anything we can do during surgery as far as positioning to try to optimize that ventilation?
1: I think the best thing again, is to try to keep the head and chest higher than the lower part of the body. So again, if you have a working table that can tilt, we can tilt the table. There'll still be in dorsal recumbency. It's hard for surgery to be performed without the patient in dorsal recumbency, but we will try to keep them at the reverse Trendelenburg or the head up position as best as possible.
0: So... Switching gears, not that the cat doesn't deserve a lot of attention, and a chronic diaphragmatic hernia is a case that takes a lot of preparation and obviously brushing up on some of our ventilation strategies and how to implement those. But I think that anything we'd tackle as far as specific complications with a chronic diaphragmatic hernia will also be highlighted in our third case which to remind our audience is a distended colic, a horse two days post parturition in foaling. And she's presented with that large colon torsion, extremely high heart rate. Let's just say she has the triple six rule, high heart rate over 60, lactate over six, PCV over 60. So. That's my triple six rule. Not setting up for a great anesthetic candidate, but obviously a sense of urgency, an ASA 5 emergency. How would you approach general ventilation in a large animal patient, potentially different than a small animal patient? And then we'll talk specifically about that colic. Well, with regards
1: to ventilation, I really find there's not a huge difference between large and small animal patients, but there's the requirement for patient size-specific equipment and supplies. And because a patient's size, we may be limited, you know, larger patients what ventilation strategies we can use for those patients. We just don't have the resources, the technology. For example, in a large animal patient, let's say a horse or a cow, we can't perform one lung ventilation. We have to ventilate all of it. And so even if we really would like to go in there and only ventilate those cow dorsal lung lobes, we're not going to be able to do that.
0: With a horse, Distended abdomen, what are you going to be battling in this horse when you induce anesthesia? What specific complications are you really keeping an eye out for? This
1: postpartum mare with colic, we're going to be presented with a patient. She's painful. She's anxious. She's going to have metabolic derangements that we're going to have to evaluate because of both the colic and pregnancy and recent unfolding. So we're going to be looking at that minimum PCB total solids electrolytes. Let's look at that calcium level and lactate. And so even before anesthesia, we're going to be giving her fluids, probably calcium prior to induction. And we also need to think about that foal. You know, the foal is going to have to be allowed to follow mom, or it's going to cause a lot of anxiety in the mom if we separate them prior to induction. So the foal is going to follow mom into the induction area. And then after mom's induced, we will usually sedate and bring the foal back to the stall. But as far as complications that I anticipate in this particular patient, you can see a mixed bag. We can see hypoxemia. We can see acid base issues. We can see hypotension, hypercapnia, and of course, acute mismatch. Immediately after induction and we've intubated her, we're going to start mechanical ventilation right away. We're not going to wait. And because that's severe abdominal distension, it's going to be really hard to give a what we would call a normal tidal volume. And we're going to have a really high peak airway pressure with that normal tidal volume we know this going in and we know there's not much we can do to correct this until we get the abdomen open and that colon is uh, decompressed and so i I may even avoid getting a blood gas sample because i know it's going to be bad i know i can't do much for that until i get that abdomen open so i'll deliver with the ventilator reasonable tidal volume as best i can by keeping that peak inspiratory pressure at a reasonable level usually 25, 30 centimeters of water and pressure for these patients. And, but in the meantime, I'm going to focus on the cardiovascular status of this patient with fluids and positive monotropes. So aid in tissue perfusion, let's get as much perfusion as possible to those alveoli that we are able to ventilate. And this may also help correct any, any coexisting metabolic acidosis that may be present.
0: You mentioned ventilating these guys before their abdomen is open, so before surgery is allowed to start, really could have a negative impact on their cardiovascular system or they're presenting hypotension. Obviously, they might already be hypotensive and having a state of poor perfusion from their disease process. Could you explain a little bit about how positive pressure ventilation has an impact on the cardiovascular status of a patient?
1: For sure. So with these higher peak airway pressures, high intrathoracic pressure, you're going to impede venous return and cardiac output. So we're going to see a decrease in cardiac output if you're using very high peak inspiratory pressure. And so we can may help mitigate that by using our positive biotropes by replacing fluid deficits. But ideally, we're going to have to back off on our inspiratory pressure because we know it's going to be at the expense of the cardiovascular status of this patient.
0: Yeah, those lungs, they share a space with the heart and all those great vessels, don't they, in that chest? Absolutely. So is there anything we can do before induction that might help minimize that time between induction and being placed on a ventilator and opening the abdomen?
1: The goal for this Type of patient that we know we're going to have some significant issues ventilating her after induction. We want to do everything we can to help speed up the process. So, if that involves doing a preliminary clip and prep prior to induction, after induction intubation, we are going to get that patient prepped and moved into the OR and draped as quickly as possible. So, it will mean rushing the surgeons, getting their hands washed, getting them gowned, getting the patient draped, and getting that belly open just as quickly as
0: possible. Being that horses are large and Obviously this one has a large distended abdomen. What effect or concerns do you have that you might see in this patient when it's placed in dorsal recumbency? Probably
1: what we're gonna see in this patient, because she's got a distended abdomen, because now we placed her in dorsal recumbency, Hopefully, we've, we're fully monitoring this patient, usually with cap- with um, capnograph as well as a pulse oximeter. So we're going to look at our entitled CO2 values. What's going to happen is once we put them in dorsal recumbency and now we have compression of those lung lobes that are so, so well perfused, is that we're going to develop a VQ mismatch because now we have perfused area of lungs that are not being ventilated. And this happens in any horse that we anesthetized, and we placed them in dorsal recumbency. We placed them on 100% oxygen, but this is going to be particularly exacerbated because of this patient's severe abdominal distension.
0: How would you recognize ventilation to perfusion, or what we call VQ mismatch, in that horse?
1: I like to compare the catenometer reading with the blood analysis for the difference in that end-tidal, or what we call alveolar carbon dioxide, to arterial carbon dioxide values. And we're going to calculate this alveolar arterial gradient. Ideally, in the normal lung, normal patient, the difference between the alveolar CO2 and the arterial CO2 aren't too too far apart, usually about five millimeters of mercury difference. But in this patient, we can see a huge difference. I've seen it 30, 40, 50, or even higher difference between what, what the capnograph is showing and what the arterial blood gas analysis is showing. So what I like to do is whenever I take an arterial blood gas sample in these patients is to just look and maybe even jot down, what is that CO2 on the capnograph Showing, and then when I get my blood gas results back, I can compare. We can, if we're things are improving, we're going to see that gradient get narrower, and hopefully back to about a five to ten difference between the two.
0: So let's say horse is down, blood gas is pulled, abdomens open, and you have 30, 40, hopefully not fifty millimeters of mercury gradient ventilation perfusion mismatch. What are the strategies that you use to try to minimize that in this patient?
1: Well, sure, there's a couple things we can try to help improve things and help get that gradient back in a more normal expected range. So typically, you know, we have our tidal volume set 10 to 15 milliliters per kilogram, a rate maybe about eight breaths per minute with a peak inspiratory pressure as high as we need to to help hopefully get that CO2 in the normal range. On healthy horses, it's about uh, 20 centimeters of water pressure, but we may have to go higher, 30, 35, 40, even higher. But again, that's at the expense of the patient's cardiovascular status. And that's pretty uncomfortable peak inspiratory pressure to have. I don't really like going over 30 or 35, although some folks have gone higher. It's just not what I like to do. So I like to compromise and live with a little bit of a hypercapnia, elevated CO2 level, keep that peak pressure around 30 cm of water, you know, again, trying to correct the patient's underlying hypoventilation, and we can do that. Sometimes you can use a peep or positive end expiratory pressure. Some folks may add, say, an inspiratory pause, so keep trying to keep that alveoli open as long as possible, bring inspiration, and then leave it open just a little bit during expiration to help encourage appropriate gas exchange. And so if they're hypoxemic at the same time, sometimes a bronchodilator like albuterol may also help improve the patient's status.
0: Could you describe specifically what PEEP is and what that does, as well as maybe what some PEEP values you might implement in a small patient and a large animal patient?
1: Well, PEEP sounds fun, but it means positive end expiratory pressure, and what we're doing is we're going to maintain some pressure in the airway and the lungs between breaths. When normally we would have a resting airway pressure close to zero, we're going to ha- keep it up. It depends on the patient what level of PEEP we're going to use. It may be as low as two and a half or five centimeters of water pressure, maybe seven and a half, maybe 10, maybe higher. Um... But we have to understand, especially in horses, keeping that expiratory pressure continually will also negatively impact cardiac output. And so we have to be mindful of that and use a level of PEEP that may help improve the patient's ventilation, but not at a level that's going to cause hypotension, decrease cardiac output. There are special PEEP valves that you can place on your breathing circuit to help maintain that positive and expiratory pressure. Uh, If you don't have PEEP valves, you certainly can just put the scavenge hose in a certain level of water and make your own PEEP by doing that. So I don't use PEEP a lot. It had to be a fairly serious case because I know how it is going to negatively impact this patient's cardiovascular status.
0: Dr. Martinez, if we move this horse to recovery, what are your continual concerns from a ventilation standpoint?
1: take a horse to recovery, we're taking off all of our supportive measures for this patient. We're not able to assist ventilation like we normally would. We're discontinuing oxygen delivery. And so prior to recovery, what I like to do is not wean the horse off the ventilator. And just maintain normal mechanical ventilation up until the time we're rolling out the door. And then we quickly get them moved to the recovery stall. And I have ready in the recovery stall a demand valve with 100% oxygen. I will be able to deliver breasts to that patient with 100% oxygen. Instead of having them wean and breathing spontaneously while we're moving, they're going to be breathing in room air, which is much less oxygen fraction than what I can deliver with a demand valve. So I don't want to dilute what oxygen we already have there. And I want to be able to maintain good ventilation. So we'll move her into a recovery. She's been in dorsal recumbency. We're now going to place her in lateral. If I have a patient in lateral recumbency for a lengthy procedure, we like to recover them in the same lateral recumbency they were in during the procedure. So those dense um, Less well-ventilated lung lobes are now not dorsal. We want to keep the best ventilated lungs always up. We'll place her in lateral recumbency, use a demand valve, and give her breaths until she's able to ventilate on her own. And then we will discontinue our demand valve, and then usually we'll just insufflate oxygen via the endotracheal tube until she's extubated. Now in small patients, and even large animal patients, sternal recumbency is always the best perfusion, best ventilation matchup when they're in sternal. So ideally in our patients, we'd recover them in sternal recumbency, but that's just not possible with a horse.
0: Yeah, horses definitely present a challenge, don't they? Absolutely. Well, that's a wonderful summation of ventilation strategies across species and throughout a variety of presenting respiratory diseases. We appreciate your time and explaining some of those strategies and how you might go about approaching those. So thank you very much, Dr. Martinez.
1: Thank you, Amanda.
0: And we thank anesthesia subscribers for listening to this podcast. Please know at Jurox, we know there are many educational opportunities available to you. And we are very happy that you took time to listen to this podcast. And we look forward to having you return and listen to our next podcast. Thank you so much.